Hello and welcome to the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast. I am Ross. And I am Gordon. Good morning, Gordon. Top of the morning to you too, sir. It's almost Paddy's day. It is, it is, it is. Sure, and we'll be having May the some... road come up to meet you before the devil knows you're dead or something along those lines. It's along the, <laughs> it, it, it is indeed along those lines, yes. <laughs> but you have that troubled look about you again. You said befuddled, but you are never fuddled. Oh, God, yes, I am. So, what is percolating in that <laughs> fine brain of yours today? Uh, yes, well... I do have that befuddled, fuddled look about me. Uh, because there are things out there that I should but don't understand. Come to think of it, a lot of things out there. Uh, welcome to humanity. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for coming. Okay, shoot. All right. A few podcasts ago, we took a look at uh, resizing of images and the various ramifications of it. And I had thought we had beat that to death, but apparently it's not dead yet. Oh, very much like the Monty Python film. Yes. Huh. I'm not only, dead yet. It's only a flesh wound. <laughs> okay, how so? A member of the camera club took an image of Jupiter and Venus in close proximity. And I believe it was a handheld shot, 300 millimeter lens, and then cropped to present a reasonable-sized image. And it was a great shot. There was great exposure. Uh, the rings were sort of visible and reasonably sharp. So I wondered to myself and postulated... Word for the week. Yeah, well, there are, there are others, I believe. Uh, that the application of one of the pro proliferating upscaling applications would whether it would or would not increase the detail and sharpness. Okay, that's a reasonable question. What did you learn? So, we, the club, largely have the Adobe Photograph Photographer's Bundle, and in recent upgrades, they have included an application called a Super Resolution. Uh, so, this was... We applied this to the image, although not sure it was a cropped raw image or a JPEG. But when we reviewed the modified image in my delicate fashion, I stated that I could not see a difference. I acknowledged that I don't know much about the process, so I started reading. And that got me irritated. Because... The marketeers, Mick or otherwise, let's not, yeah, I St. Paddy's, Mick Marketeers. <laughs> I think we were referring to McDonald's, not the Irish, but that's okay. Nobody said so. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> they were writing about the process in terms of software being exposed to millions of images, and it learns. And this strikes me as deliberate obfuscation second word second word of the issue and the hoodwinking of the potential user if you want to call it improved algorithms okay great i applaud you but learning come on seriously 
I think you're starting to rub off on me a bit. Well, that is unfortunate <laughs> for you. Uh, but as you are a dear friend, I don't want to see you blow a gasket and spew gray matter all over the table. I, too, have read the mumbo-jumbo. And it really is a giant load of mumbo-jumbo. It's an algorithm. It takes the linear dimensions in pixels of an image that we would, in conversational language, call length and width, and doubles the pixel count in each dimension. And that creates a new file that has four times the pixel density of the original. Conceptually, this is nothing new. Photoshop has offered what they call bicubic expansion for a very long time, and the purpose of that has always been to create a larger file having greater pixel density for the purpose of making large prints. Okay. So, more basically, how do we actually define uh, resolution? We talk about it a lot, but how do we really define it? Is it more pixels, smaller pixels, more and smaller pixels? How we define resolution should be simple, but is often buried in the leave-behinds of a passage of <laughs> horses. In an image, a two-dimensional construct, we know it's simply the number of pixels wide multiplied by the number of pixels tall, which arrives at a two-dimensional resolution number. For the most part, not always, this is the same as the maximum usable area of a sensor, which we all know far too well from the idiocy of the megapixel wars. The challenge is not cramming more pixels into any space. It is cramming more pixels into a space of fixed dimensions. So, for example, a full-frame sensor rated at 20 megapixels has lower resolution than a full-frame sensor rated at 50 megapixels. Because there are fewer pixels, right? So it would seem. Not entirely. Because there's more that goes into objective resolution, including, but not limited to, pixel surface area. The space between the pixels, the energy demands created by a pixel in order to deliver data for a given exposure value level. Counting pixels is only part of the overall solution. And the effects on overall sharpness? The number of pixels has a very limited impact on objective sharpness because sharpness measurements do not happen at the sensor. They are typically measured on a display, and as we already know, all displays have comparatively horrible resolution relative to what the sensor delivers. Even with top-line high-definition displays of common usage size, not delivering more than 200 pixels per inch. That's a lot less, as we discussed in a prior episode, than what our sensors are capable of doing. Moreover, sharpening is really a measure of the contrast shift between adjacent pixels. Mm -hmm. Okay. So anyone who asserts that a system is sharper just by looking at a particular display, particularly a resizing system, is unfortunately mistaken. Print made on a photographic printer, as opposed to a printer not built specifically to do photographs, even from a good print file, will have a much higher resolution than a display. 
so prints are often used as a measure of sharpness. Again, this is subjective because it depends on what the printer is capable of. And this works fine right up to the limit, not of the file, but of what the printing subsystem and the printhead can make of that print file. For example, and we've talked about this, we can send a 300 dot per inch file to a printer, but the printing subsystem, once it receives the file, may interpolate within those two dimensions and actually print at a much higher resolution, such as, for example, 1440 pixels per inch. Moreover, most print heads do not print the same resolution of dots on the short side as on the long side. So we will often see a print head that is rated at 1440 long by 640 tall. And that has an impact on this perception of resolution. One can easily find out what the maximum actual print resolution is by, wait for it, reading the documentation for <gasps> their printer. Yes, I know. I know. <gasps> Alcoholism and drug abuse ensue. Even then, you'll find that top-line printers do not come near to the resolution of even a 20-megapixel sensor. Thus, pixels as a measurements of pure resolution just means that you've stepped in that aforementioned horse passage leave behind. <laughs> that, that's that's interesting because we never really think in terms of we, we you're you're right. We think we hear about megapixels and we look at it that, but we don't we don't factor in all these other things, the print size, the what you're looking at, the display size. And that throws a whole different slew on things. So let's assume that that covers the basics. But maybe we should dive into the super resolution claims to fame that Adobe has. Sure. We know that super resolution doubles the pixel count in two dimensions for effectively a four-time increase in pixel count. Does this inherently make for better re resolution that has an objective, meaning useful value? Not necessarily. Adobe makes reference to making large prints from older, smaller originals. That's a good answer to a serious challenge. Mm -hmm. Their algorithm follows a set of rules based on a large sample set of images. By using a large set of samples, Adobe, like other software makers, calls this learning or artificial intelligence. In reality, it's neither, and it's not a new idea either. For a long time, Cameron camera manufacturers have used millions of reference images to come up with a processing that happens in the camera before the raw file and its embedded JPEG are even written to memory. You can slap all the Elizabeth Arden on your local swine, but in the end, it's still a pig. Perhaps it is a better-looking pig, but that sort of determination is well outside my areas of expertise or interest. So why should we bother at all with the, the whole concept? Well, some of us who are photographic instructors emphasize the importance of simplicity of story. The goal of a photograph is to tell a story. My friend, the photographer, educator, and author, Rick Salmon, simplifies these concepts into what we all refer to as Salmonisms. The one I think of in this scenario is that the name of the game is to fill the frame. 
copyright Rick Salmon. However, there will be times when even the most diligent photographer cannot do that. You reference this excellent piece of work by a club member to get Jupiter and Venus into the same frame. Yes, they leveraged an astronomical event, but they went out and did the work. And in this case, while atmospheric distortion and light pollution had a deleterious impact on the image, that's the third word, mm -hmm. the photographer just didn't have enough glass and wasn't in the best physical location. And consequently, some cropping was required to create focus on the subjects. I think the photographer did a really good job. But like Rick, I believe that it is a rare photograph that will not benefit from some cropping. But whenever we crop, it impacts resolution. I know you know, so why is that? Well, that's sort of obvious, because when you crop an image, whatever you have cropped is lost. It no longer counts towards the resolution of the image. Precisely. So, if I shoot a frame on a 20 megapixel sensor, but in order to fill the frame, I have to crop away three quarters of it to get the subject in order in that space where it fills the frame properly. I no longer have a 20 megapixel image, do I? Of course not. Roughly, I have a five megapixel image. And while this will make a 20 by 30 print, that will look great at proper viewing distance. Too many photographers have bought into the big lie that only a big megapixel count results in a good quality print. We won't even get into looking at it on a normal photographic display, because we've already discussed how photographic displays are very low res. So if we look at super resolution from Adobe, it expands that pixel count two times in two dimensions. So that 20 megapixel image cropped to 5 megapixels is after the application of super resolution now a 20 megapixel image, meaning it has four times the pixels available to it in order to make that print. That's mm -hmm. a pretty good thing. That's a good thing. I hadn't factored that in. Okay. But where does the content of all those extra pixels that we've just thrown out of the window uh, that we've now replaced, where do, where, does, where do those extra pixels come from? Well, that's where all these samples that went into creating the algorithm come in. The larger the sample size, the more accurate the approximation of what is missing between pixels in a 9 by 9 pixel square is required. Because remember, we're starting out with only the center pixel. Mm -hmm. When we expand two times in each dimension... We're creating a nine-pixel square cube. Right. Where 80 of the pixels didn't exist. Okay. So consequently, the software looks to the sample size that created the algorithm, and the so-called AI or magic or nerf twiddling or whatever you call it, is using the data from the samples that define the algorithm in order to fill in the content for those eight pixels. The larger the sample size, as we've said, the higher the probability that the fill-ins will make sense. And this is absolutely a probability matrix. It's not learning, and it's certainly not intelligent. But 
it can do a really spectacular looking job if the maker has a good and diverse and sizable sample set. And that's actually sort of mind-blowing because you've taken a whole bunch of stuff, thrown it out, you've left gaps in, in your image all over the place, and suddenly this thing comes along and puts everything back. The, the fact that it can regenerate what, what's missing and make it look plausible, in other words, that's four. It's uh, it really is quite amazing. So, what what's the catch with this? Well, I think the catch is what it's always been. How much data are we starting with, and how much has been done to that data before you apply the super resolution algorithm? And in fairness to Adobe, this is true for any resizing algorithm. We all know that JPEG Fine retains less than 30% of the original data. So while a tool like Super Resolution will work on JPEGs, it's never going to give you the same outcome as when it's working on a raw file. Moreover, something you said earlier needs to be emphasized. When we fill in those blank pixels, we're not restoring data that was gone. We're restoring a guess mm -hmm. of what should be there because we've created pixels out of nothing. Okay. There's no restoration happening. So we need to think about that. We also need to consider the impact of what processing has been done to the original file. Now, JPEGs, from a resizing perspective, are a really challenging place to start because they've already been sharpened and they've already had noise reduction applied long before the JPEG was actually created. And we know that both sharpening and noise reduction negatively impact what super resolution could do. How do we know this? Because Adobe tells you so, <laughs> if all you do is just read about it. This is why Adobe recommends raw files for super resolution treatment. They're also very honest that computational photography generated RAWs, such as we will find in our smartphones, have already been heavily processed and there's gonna be a limit to what super resolution can do with any of those. So while we're often very, very pleased with our smartphone images, they're poor candidates in any of their recorded formats, JPEG or Hike, for super resolution. And I can see from this that the resulting files get really, really big. Of course, folks assume that it's just going to be four times larger because the pixel count is increasing by a factor of four. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that the file size will only be four times larger than the original. First and foremost, we have to remember that the output of the super resolution process is a DNG raw file, which by its nature is raw, and therefore there is a data set for every pixel, whether it was real or created in the process. And so we've seen 1.2 megabyte JPEGs from smartphones turn into 126 megabyte DNG raws. Yeah, a hundred times larger. Mm -hmm. And we also have to remember that making a raw from a JPEG 
doesn't restore all the data that was lost in the original JPEG's creation, of course. It's guest data. But I find that a lot of the documentation misses out, or leaves out, or neglects to mention this fact. No, I never saw that written anywhere in everything I've read or listened to recently. So, that's super resolution as per Adobe. Now, what about the alternatives, such as Topaz, uh, Gigapixel, and On One's Resize module? Well, in fairness to all three, you can't make a linear comparison. Super Resolution had a design mission. Don't make it complicated. Right. Keep it simple. And in order to preserve a reasonable expectation of processing time, don't allow it to expand more than two times in either of the two dimensions. Mm -hmm. It does have a very large sample set, and it does a very good job but is also very quick, typically returning a final solution in under about 15 seconds. It really is very fast in doing it, yes. And for the general user, they'll tolerate a 15-second wait. Topaz don't document how they do what they do, but the controls are much more expansive, as well as the inclusion of AI in the name, which is, as we all know, the telltale beating heart of an enormous sample set. And consequently, it's rated by reviewers as being better than super resolution. Yet it better be. It's a licensed program product on a subscription that costs over and above what Adobe is giving you as part of the photographer's bundle. You've got to buy it. We also know that Gigapixel AI will go up to six times expansion in each dimension, which means significantly more math. And in theory, probabilistically, word five, <laughs> a better output. I agree. It is technically superior. But 15 minutes of computation time on a single image is a whole lot different than 15 seconds. So we're talking about different use cases. And to see the difference between the two on a display without zooming to multiple factors of life size, you won't see it. It's not going to happen. Consider that the more of the original that you crop away, however, the more robust the tool for resizing you might choose to use. Mm-hmm. Now, On One originally called their product perfect fractals. Fractals are patterns in the real world that exist naturally into the very tiny and up into the very giant. Basically, every fractal contains itself and grows into itself. I found the concept so fascinating that I studied it in university many decades ago. Fractals and fractal mathematics were brought to global awareness by an IBM scientist named Benoit Mandelbrot. Fractals do not depend on sample sets the way that expanders do. Fractal mathematics is completely different, and what it does is seek the pattern that is already there 
and uses the information that goes into creating the pattern in the resizing application to fill in the mix missing pieces. In theory, that would make it more specifically accurate mm -hmm. because it's only looking at the pattern in the original. Correct. Well, I'm confident in saying that no one can tell the difference on any screen at life size at proper, proper viewing distance between any of the current offerings. My brain always goes to fractals because they're real, unique, and are not the same level of probability guesses. Yikes. If there's a long gap here, it's because I'm trying to wrap my head around this. So provided we, we can wrap our heads around this, what would you say, then, is the case usage for these various apps? The, the time, and, uh, time commitment and the uh, size commitments and the storage commitments. I can't see doing it to all, every image that you've got. So where would we conceivably use this to our advantage? Really, it comes down to what Adobe said in the beginning. I've got a low pixel count image that I want to make a large print from. And by the way, that's where Perfect Resize and Gigapixel also started. Mm -hmm. The idea to take a lower resolution image and make a bigger print from it. I need more pixels to fill in the blanks on a larger print. For this, all these tools can help. But where I think it's important to know is where the native print size of your initial image falls so you can then decide which tool will best get you to where you want to be. So, so smaller, 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 more richer, more powerful expander. Right. It really is that simple. So would it make sense then if you can see uh, or your anticipation is that you're going to do a lot of cropping in the size, in the image that you have to do the upscaling first and then crop? Or would it make sense to? It will only uh, add. I, I don't know. It will only add time. So and do, result will be the same. Probably worse. Okay. So do your cropping first. Okay. Then do your upscaling. Upscaling. Okay. But in all the presentations of of the apps, it's all sort of jumbled together that it gets hard to sort out, or even recognize the fact that. Each of those things is doing something different. So they make reference to these tools as improving sharpness and reducing noise. But shouldn't we be not comparing, let's say, super resolution with... Uh, Topaz uh, and its three products versus on one and its four products or whatever. So sizing is sizing is sizing, and the other things are different. That's absolutely correct. Resizing does not improve sharpness. Okay. Resizing does not reduce noise. However, 
some manufacturers bring subsets of their standalone sharpening and noise reduction tools into their resizing products. Okay. So if we look at Gigapixel or Resize, we will see noise and sharpness sliders. Right. That has nothing to do with the Resize. Okay. They are subsets. Resizing on its own doesn't offer ultra sharpness or noise in any way. Photoshop or Adobe doesn't build sharpening or noise reduction into super resolution because they already deliver those things in about 16 different ways. Right. It's just and, a, it's, it, it's just a case of the approach that the user wants to take. Okay. But the, the key thought is resizing has no impact on sharpness. It has no impact on noise reduction. Okay. And this is not clear in, in the literature surrounding Oh, not this. at all. Not at all. The literature makes it look like it sings, dances, and makes julienne fries, but <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's important to, that that is pointed out because I know a couple of people that have the programs, and when you ask them what you're going to do, and they say, well, we'll resize it, and that'll make the sharpness better, and I'm saying, maybe, maybe not. I don't know enough about this, but... But now you do. But now, but now I know. And it's math. Right. It's just math. It is. Sharp and, and, and quickly, sharpening is all about increasing contrast between adjacent pixels. Right. Noise reduction is all about reducing contrast going, going the other way. between adjacent pixels. Right. So sharpening and noise reduction fight each other. They're working against each other mm -hmm. all the time. Right. And that's why we separate the tools because inevitably we want to balance. And we separate them in Lightroom and in Photoshop. We do. Because they are doing very, very different things. And I think your point that uh, Photoshop does all of this in different locations is, uh, is an important point because if we, the general public, understand that all these tools that are presented by other people are actually incorporated into Photoshop or Lightroom. And you make the choice of what you want to do, then uh, you can achieve them with pretty much any tool. And that's not always clear. So I think, I think bringing out that point is, is a good thing. Okay, so maybe now I can put my brain to rest and, or at least put it down for a nap and not bring this up again. So, for the Make Better Photos and Videos podcast, I still am Gordon, and thank you all for listening. And I am Ross. Please subscribe to be notified of new episodes, and don't forget to check the articles on our site as well. If you shop with BNH Photo Video, please do so through the link on the homepage. There's no impact, negative impact for you, and we earn a small commission when you use our link, and that helps us keep things going around here. Until next time, peace.